On this episode of The London Lyceum, we talk with Dr. Madison Pierce about prosopological exegesis. So we cover topics like just what is prosopological exegesis? What is the metaphysical grounding that's behind it? What are some examples of this? Has the Christian tradition largely recognized this practice? Is it problematic that this may not be a very intuitive way to interpret the Bible? Or maybe it should be an intuitive way to interpret the Bible. What are some practical pieces of advice for how pastors can approach this in teaching their own churches and much more? As always, if you have thoughts about the episode or ideas or requests for the show in general, you can hit us up, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or you can check us out at our website, thelondonlyceum.com. Now, for the only analytic, Baptist, and confessional podcast on the planet— we think this one's going to get you thinking. I'd like to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of the London Lyceum. We're a podcast that's devoted to thinking, but we don't want to just think in general. We want to think well. So in an effort to think well, we're, we desire to create an intellectual culture that's full of charity, curiosity, critical thinking, and cheerful confessionalism all while we think. And I'm one of your hosts, Jordan Stefaniak. And I'm your co-host, Brandon Askew. And in an effort to foster those things, we are looking forward to introducing you to Dr. Madison Pierce on the topic of which, you know, now that I come to say it, I realize I have no idea how to pronounce it. <laughs> so this could be totally butchering. My, you know, I make myself look really bad all the time with how I pronounce things poorly, but prosopological exegesis, maybe that's close. I have no idea. She'll have to tell us. Uh, and we'll talk more about that in a second. But before we do jump in, Dr. Pierce, uh, thank you for joining us, number one. And second, can you just give us a brief background of who you are and then what got you interested in talking about this because, or thinking about this? Because when I think back to my own experience, I had never seen this word in my life until <laughs> after seminary. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, that's how I pronounce it too. So if you know, at least we're in good company if we're doing it incorrectly. I don't know. Um, I think that's how I typically hear it. But yes, it is a it's a beast. Um, so I currently teach at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School in Deerfield. Um, prior to that, um, I, you know, I grew up in Texas. Um, I went to a Southern Baptist University, Washita Baptist in Arkadelphia, Arkansas for undergrad. And, uh, and then went to Ted's for my master's and, and then uh, Durham University for my PhD. And actually, the you know, how I got into this um, starts all the way back at Washita. Um, I ended up in a class, um, you know, I can talk more about my vocation or whatever if I want to, but this topic, um, you know, I, I ended up in a class on Hebrews and general epistles. And I immediately thought, this is exactly what I love. I mean, it, it was so important for me to understand the connections between who Jesus is and what scripture had revealed about him. Um, and that just hadn't been a part of my upbringing to that point. Um, in fact, I had heard a lot of caricatures of um, the um, the insufficiency, the deficiency of the Old Testament and things like that. And um, so this just opened up so many doors for me and it was so important. And I, and I, I love the style of the author of Hebrews, so all of that. So I knew from that point that Hebrews was going to be my thing. Um, and thankfully, um, I wasn't sorely disappointed as I, I moved along. I just continued to love it and enjoy it. Um, so when I was going to Durham, I applied to work on the Holy Spirit in Hebrews. Um, that was something that um, is really is, it remains a kind of neglected area of study. Um, but as I started to work on it, um, I, I got really interested in the places where the Spirit speaks in Hebrews, which is in Hebrews 3 and 4, and then in Hebrews 10. Um, I thought this is really atypical. 
Um, and I happened upon a paper by Matthew Bates on prosopological exegesis um, and started to dig in. So I, you know, grabbed um, his first monograph, Hermeneutics of Apostolic Proclamation, I think that's right, um, and was just, my, my mind was just blown. Um, and so there I started to look at the ways that this might be applied to Hebrews more broadly. Um, thankfully, in the meantime, uh, Matt, he came out with another book, Birth of the Trinity, where he explored that further and even dealt with Hebrew substantially. And so uh, that provided a really neat resource for me. Um, but between those two projects, um, I was already full speed ahead, you know, thinking this is so key to how we understand Hebrews. Mm -hmm. So I'm happy to say more about what it is and all of that. But that's how I got into it is being interested in really a new mythology, but then seeing that this helped us to understand understand theology proper, um, you know, Father, Son, and Spirit in Hebrews. So Awesome. I, I do want to give a quick plug. I, I forgot to mention it. You've got your book that's less than a year old, Divine Discourse in the Epistle to the Hebrews, the Recontextualization of Spoken Quotations of Scripture. Now, I'll link to this in the show notes if you want to get a copy. Um, I haven't read it. Um, I try to read as much as I can of all of our guest stuff, but at some point it's just like, I can't keep, <laughs> keep up. Uh, but I do know... Cody Float, um, who's who joins the podcast quite often, he's read it and he loved it. He said it's fantastic. Oh, yeah. So I, I trust his recommendation, and um, as well as just seeing some of the other stuff you're doing. I think it's really interesting and good stuff. So I imagine this is a great book to get, uh, particularly if you're interested in the topic. And quick question before Brandon goes: you, you mentioned you went to a Southern Baptist University. Are you still a Baptist? I'm not, um, but I did grow up. I grew up Baptist, um, and I, you know, received my first call to ministry um, in a Baptist church, and mm -hmm. and then um, started to explore what God had on the horizon for me. So uh, we, we um, just talked to J Dr. James Arcadi, and he too was once one of us, and has since <laughs> departed. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and I am also Anglican now, so <laughs> oh. James and I are peas in a pod. <laughs> uh, well, well then, apparently we like to have Anglicans on the show. I know we have a lot of Anglican listeners, too. So um, one of my good friends, Felipe Dovale, is also Anglican. So apparently Ang Anglicanism is where it's at to do all these great stuff that we need to learn. So hopefully for those who want to stay Baptist, uh, me and Brandon, we can learn from our brothers and sisters uh, who are doing great work and hopefully have some of that in our own Baptist tradition. Anyway, that's thanks, an Jordan. aside. <laughs> so, um, Dr. Pierce, thanks again for for giving us some of your time. I guess, um, and this is something I'm really interested in learning more about because I, I'm pretty unfamiliar with this uh, in general. And I think our, our listener audience, it varies quite a bit from lay level to, to scholar. So maybe... Um, the best way to begin is kind of a two-part question. Uh, one, just simply what is prosopological exegesis, if you can define that in a way that um, would be accessible for, um, you know, a pastor or, or even a lay-level audience. But then maybe the part two of that question, are there any uh, metaphysical, like, pre-commitments that we need to have in place for this kind of exegesis to actually um, be done? So assumptions that we need to have in place for this to even make sense. Yeah. Um, so to start out, this is something that the the ancient authors are doing. So it's a reading strategy by um, what we you know we might call them later authors of earlier texts. And so, of course, you know, New Testament authors reading Old Testament texts is a great example of this. But it's not limited to that. 
Um, so with that, they are the ones that are doing the exegesis. Um, and they are reading these earlier texts in light of new characters um, or more specific characters. So you take, for example, Psalm 22. Um, we have this speaker. Um, he's often identified with David, especially in Greek versions of Jewish scripture. Um, and, and that continues to be a, a common identification. Um, but this person in the Hebrew text is anonymous. Um, he's a righteous sufferer. And he's been identified in various ways throughout the history of interpretation. Well, New Testament authors um, obviously identify this righteous sufferer with Jesus. So they identify him as the character, the face. And this is why it's called prosopological exegesis, because it's the prosopon is the Greek word for face. Um, so it's a face or character um, in a text. I hope I'm making sense so far. Y'all interrupt me if I'm if I'm not. No, you're um, making sense. Can, yeah. Okay, good. Um, so you interpret a text in light of another or more specific character, a new or more specific character. Um, as far as the metaphysical assumptions, um, I personally think that there likely are metaphysical assumptions on the part of the ancient author that is doing this work, um, that they assume that this is an authoritative text, and also that um, that God speaks through that text in some way, um, that there's a truth in the text that can be unlocked. And it, it's an interesting um, hermeneutic because it is really based on the actual words of the text itself. Um, so oftentimes what we see is that there's some kind of ambiguity or tension or interesting feature of the texts that are read in this way that give us a clue. Um, so you have some kind of dialogue, for example, in Psalm 110, it's the Lord said to my Lord. Well, that's a conversation. And then, of course, in Greek traditions, that's um, kurios or Lord said to kurios. Um, both of those characters can be identified as Adonai or the Lord. And so that's interesting. <laughs> we got to figure that out. Um, so it's something in the grammar. So it's it's interesting. I, I think it's interesting because it, um, it fits well with our kind of evangelical assumptions about kind of historical grammatical or historical critical readings of texts. That's that's kind of what they're doing um, is working from from what's said um, and then offering a maybe more creative reading there. So I hope that makes sense. Yeah, it does. It does. So so we're basically trying to unravel or identify a conversation that's going on prior to the, the, I guess we're looking back at a previous text and it's not clearly identified in the previous text um, who is speaking to whom. So we have, I guess, members of the Trinity that can be speaking back and forth to one another in these, in these passages. Yeah, as a point of clarity, again, this isn't something necessarily that we're doing. Um, it's the the ancient authors that are doing it. I mean, I think we we do this um, yeah. in our own exegesis, but prosopological exegesis is the ancient author doing that. Right. And so some of that investigative work that I was talking about and kind of looking for ambiguities and things, um, I, I actually, I think that's probably a distinctive feature of my kind of flavor of prosopological exegesis. If, if I were to say, this is how my work differs from Matt Bates, for example, okay. um, I've, I've done a little bit more in terms of saying, okay, why is this a text that's being read in this way? Um, but yeah. Okay. I hope that makes sense. So I'll, I'll stop prefacing that. <laughs> no, no, you mentioned the ancient authors are, are doing this behind the scenes. Is this something that 
we see being done like interpretive practice throughout the Christian tradition where we're always have this practice or does it fall out and then it resurfaces? Like, what does that look like? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so some point, including um, Matt Bates, will point to precursors in Jewish traditions. Um, I've done a little bit of work on this. And um, I think Matt draws a, a, um, a closer correspondence between um, the, what the Jewish practice is and what's happening in, in the New Testament. I would say that there are kind of parallel strands or um, similar operating assumptions or something like that. Um, so we see something like this in Jewish exegesis. So that that's the kind of basic claim that I want to make. Um, and I think we see it in most um, corpora within the New Testament. So we, I think we see it in the Gospels. I can give some examples of that would be helpful. Certainly in Acts as an extension of, of Luke's work in Paul. Um, we see it in Hebrews and in P, in 1 Peter. Um, uh, there are fewer uh, quotations in some of the ca- other Catholic epistles. Um, and then we see something like it in Revelation. Um, although I'm, I'm struggling. I, I don't know. That might be the one where I can't come up with a good example off the top of my head. But um, so, yeah, everywhere. But um, the question is how you kind of define it and what features need to be operative. So for some, there needs to be some kind of discussion about the identification and some kind of uh, acknowledgement of the tension. Uh, I think there needs to be the interpretive kind of precursor. There needs to be some kind of um, evidence in the um, interpretive tradition. So prior to the the exegesis that points us in this direction where we think, oh, well, yeah, that's an interesting move. Um, As far as after the New Testament, that's where it becomes explicit. So you have, for example, in Justin, I believe he's the first to to specifically label this. He says, from the prosopon or from the face or person of Christ or the spirit, et cetera, and actually talks about what it looks like to do this kind of exegesis also. Hmm. So so maybe, yeah, can we unpack a few specific examples? Maybe this will be helpful for us. So, you know, if you want to choose something from the Gospels or wherever you're most comfortable in, in unpacking one. Yeah. Um, I mean, so I've already highlighted the features within Psalm 110 that make it a kind of, um, you know, great place for this kind of thing. And as it would happen, this reading is found all over. Um, so we certainly see it in uh, the Gospels and the Synoptics where Jesus is reading this or is interpreting this text. And this is the kind of classic discussion with the Jewish leaders where he says, um, you know, David calls him Lord. How can he be his son? So he's pushing against what seems to be the typical interpretation of the day that this is the son of David, you know, kind of full stop. Um, he's saying that there's something about that that's not quite right. Your your conception of son of David isn't quite right. Um, so that would be one example. Um, another would be, let's see, I mean, I, I personally think that um, Acts 8, where uh, Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch are interacting, um, he... Clearly, he reads um, Isaiah 53, and then he says, who is this talking about, the prophet or someone else? And so we actually see prosopological exegesis like unfolding within the text. Um, and, you know, in Philip, this is what Acts says, then Philip tells him about Jesus. And mm-hmm. so the implicit kind of understanding there is that Philip tells him that's that's the guy. Um one more. 
Um, and then it's all over the place in, in Hebrews, of course. I mean, that's that's um, how I, that was really my kind of inroad. But Hebrews 1 is um, such a helpful um, series of examples of prosopological exegesis because of all the different levels that are going on. So we have the Father speaking to the Son. So the Son is identified as the addressee. But it's also the case that the tension in the reading is highlighted for us as well. He says, this is not about angels. That's not who's being addressed here. It's the son. Um, and that's going to be the case kind of all throughout. So hopefully those are helpful. Feel free to ask specific questions. Yeah. So I'm thinking of a passage like like Genesis 1.26. So, you know, let us make man in, in our image. Um, so is, is there anything in the history of, of Christian interpretation of that passage that kind of gets at what exactly or, or at least similar to to what you're talking about here? Yeah, that's a great question. And it actually highlights a part of my definition that I didn't make explicit, which is that this really needs to be um, centered around uh, text where there's speech. And so, uh, well, I get, which I guess there is, um, you know, who is the us? And we do see readings of that in um, early Christianity. And I'm sorry, I can't remember which of yeah. the early Christian writers are actually doing this, but I know it's kind of all over the place. Um, and so, yeah, they would say this is the Trinity. Um, yeah. You know, the us is Father, Son, Spirit. Yeah. So that okay. does fit. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So this is this is really new for a lot of people, I think. Um, so <laughs> have you received any, well, any scholar is going to receive objections, but have you received any objections that you think, you know, you thought, well, maybe I should really take a lot of time to to think through that and respond to that. And and even if you don't think the objection is sound and it doesn't convince you that it's at least maybe you think it's common or that it, um, you know, it has, it carries enough weight that, you know, it is something that maybe we should, should take some time to think through. What are, what are some of those objections that you've, you've come across? Yeah, um, there are a couple, and I can address a couple of them pretty quickly. And so if you don't mind, I'll, I'll kind of go through. Sure. Yeah. Um, wh- one is that this is, um, you know, it's it's overly complex. And so, you know, no one can understand this. So is it really helpful? And I, I totally get that. I, I think that that's, that's um, we've got a branding problem with prosopological exegesis. Um, <laughs> that that name is hor- horrifying. Um, but but really, it's it's easy to understand, I think. I mean, I, ho- I hope that that's been your experience in this conversation, that it's about looking for characters and, you know, understanding an author reading an, a text in light of another character. That's that's what we understand with Christological exegesis. Mm-hmm. So it's just this a specific kind or flavor of that. So that's one thing. Um, but then the the um, related thing is, well, we know it Christological exegesis, or we know it typological, et cetera, et cetera, Christological readings, figurative readings, et cetera. So why do we need this terminology? Why does this matter? That's a great question. But some of the, the conversation that we've had about the operating assumptions, what this tells us about interpretive traditions, the kinds of ways that people were reading texts at that time, I think that's really important. So in understanding why in the world the author of Hebrews would pick Psalm 110.4, not Psalm 110.1 as his, or well, both, but you know why he would bring in Psalm 110.4 to his program. That, that helps us a lot in understanding what in the world's going on in Hebrews. Um, and so I think that's the the why um, of prosopological exegesis. I'll, I'll stop for a second. I do have one more, but if you, if you want to follow up. 
No, I think the the naming branding issue is spot on. <laughs> I mean, I, I can think if I tell somebody in my church about this, the name's probably just going to throw them off to begin with uh, and yeah. think, wow, this is this is above my pay grade. I'll let the professionals do that work while me, I'm, I'm just not going to do it. So I, I definitely think that is a, a serious problem, not a not like actual underneath the hood problem but that i think the branding does have a negative impact when i think about it it really does yeah and you know listeners if you have a better suggestion by all means i got my husband works in marketing maybe he maybe i should put him <laughs> to the task um the the final thing it relates to some of what i've said so i've almost kind of anticipated this in some of my discussion but um you know there's been some misunderstandings about how this relates to something like a typological reading or christological reading and um, and and um, a kind of misunderstanding of this as a hermeneutic. I've certainly used the language of hermeneutics because I think there are underlying assumptions that the authors are using when they're using this. But uh, it's very important to me that we keep in mind that this is a method. Um, so this is a way of reading that has hermeneutical assumptions. So uh, this is me being a little pedantic and trying to distinguish between interpreting and uh, or interpretation and hermeneutics. But I think that's really important. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think this is a method that works in service of typological, Christological insert, you know, pneumatological, I highlighted the the role of the spirit earlier, those kinds of things. So this is a, a way of reading. Um, so that that's the most important thing I kind of want to get out there, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, no, that's helpful. So I guess the idea is that this is, this is one tool or practice among many that we're bringing to the text. And it depends on the text if we're going to utilize this, because not every text does this fit into, right? Oh, of course not. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I think it is common, but it's certainly not ubiquitous. And, it, and you know, even in Hebrews, where I would say, yeah, this is all over the place in Hebrews, there are so many other ways that the author of Hebrews is reading Scripture. Yeah. That makes so, sense. So maybe uh, a lot of a lot of listeners and just a lot of people in general in in our day, there's there's a focus, maybe a maybe too much of a focus on getting inside the mind of the human author um, of a passage. So, so did this have like, did this, uh, the, this way of reading the passage or way of, um, that, that the later reader is, is understanding the original text or the pretext or however you would put it, did the author of the pretext have to have this in mind or maybe should we, should we focus more on the divine author, author that rather than trying to get inside the mind of the human author? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, it, my in my work, I'm focusing on the a, a human author, but a different human author. So I'm focusing on the later human author, and assuming right, that right. that individual is, you know, through the inspiration of the Spirit, is reading this text in a way that God intends. And so, mm-hmm. no, I I I think it's very unlikely that the first author had this in mind. I, I mean, but that's, this is obviously a big question about inspiration generally and, and evangelicals tend to disagree. So some think that, you know, Isaiah knew that this was about Jesus and in Isaiah eight and nine, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, we don't have evidence of that. So I, I have some difficulty with it, but yeah. 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 So as I think about this, 
Now, I am not a Trinitarian like expert or nerd or any of that stuff, but I think I've got a decent grasp of it. So, I, I, as I'm thinking about this, and there's you know, conver- in, inner conversations that are going on with speaking to one another, is there potential dangers of going down? Or maybe you don't think it's a danger to have three wills in God, but is it? potentially <laughs> leading you down this road where if you're not careful, you could end up say, saying that there are three distinct wills in God when, mm-hmm. when you talk about this type of dialogue that's going on. Yeah. Um, I mean, this this is one of the... Um, so backing up a little bit, sorry, not that I've really said that much. In my head, I've said a lot. Um, but So when prosopological exegesis, uh, or one of the classic places where prosopological exegesis appears is in Tertullian's work um, in, you know, against uh, Praxeus. And it's in um, chapter 11, where he talks about how the conversation among the three persons in Psalm 110, um, he talks about Psalm 2-7, uh, you know, you are my son today, begotten you. He says, um, he doesn't say, um, I am my son today, I've begotten myself. You know, for example, he says, this is evidence that they are distinct, not separate. Um, but this is his argument for the three distinct persons. Prospological exegesis serves the three rather well in terms of the Trinity. Um, but the question is, does it also serve the one uh, or the oneness of God? And so I, th- I think you're right, Jordan, you're, you're putting your finger on something difficult or a possible um, kind of, um, I don't know, <laughs> uh, slippery slope or extension or whatever. I don't, you know. So uh, some of my recent work, I've tried to show that prosopological exegesis can actually pull the people back together. Um, you know, um, I'm being a little colloquial there, of course. Um, because in a lot of these readings where there is tension, um, there's something kind of ambiguous or strange in an earlier text. Um, what ends up happening is that Jesus or the Spirit is presented as Adonai. Um, you know, he is the one identified as the one who judges all things. Um, so, you know, an example, I have a few examples, but one one that's um, pretty accessible for most people is um, Psalm 102, and this is in Hebrews 1, 10 to 12. Um, so there's some background stuff that's a little more complicated, but I'll just say that in Greek versions of this, there's a conversation. Um, so it's, he answered, that, that's in the Septuagint. Um, and what ends up happening is that it's, it looks like the Lord speaks to the Lord and says, you are from the beginning, O God. Or sorry, you're from the beginning, O Lord. Um, and in Hebrews, this is interpreted in light of Jesus. Mm-hmm. And in Hebrews, the Father says this to the Son. Mm-hmm. So then both of them are identified as the Lord, the one Lord. Um, and the and Jesus is identified as the one who is... Um, the creator of heavens and the earth and not a you created through the sun, but the sun is this, the one identified as the creator. Um, so I, I think that's significant and points toward unity and a unity of purpose as well to get back to the language that you introduced about will. Mm. I hope that makes sense. It does. Yeah. I have a question, a historical question. Uh, so you've, you've mentioned a few names already, Justin and Tertullian. Um, it, was this 
and I think we, we we may have briefly touched on this earlier, but as far as just the history of interpretation, when did when did this kind of fall out of favor? Like, was this a common practice during the Reformation, for example, or did this maybe just fall out of favor, like in the in the modern era? Or what was this something that the reformers were were doing? Is this was this a natural way for them to read the text? Yeah. Um, so I know much less about the reformers. Early, you know, New Testament and then early Christianity is more my thing. Um, but I've had, uh, you know, since I've been working on this, I've had a few people, um, you know, pointed out to me in Luther in particular. Um, so I think it is present in other reformers. It's certainly, um, I think, attested in Aquinas. Um, and so um, in the medieval period um, and, and other medieval um, writers. And then um trying to think of like the latest early early Christian writer or you know patristic author that I I think is late as sixth century um is what I know off the top of my head. So yeah. Okay. Yeah. I you know I'm looking at your book and I'm curious, can you talk to I mean I didn't know which one I wanted to talk ask you about to give a tease for the whole thing. But maybe we do Hebrews eight. Um the Father speaks of a new covenant. Can Walk me through just high level. What's what's going on there? What's distinctive and about proselytological exegesis that it's bringing to the table that I wouldn't have had without it? Uh, what, <laughs> what's the benefit that I'm getting from reading that text in light of this? Yeah, I know that's off is... the cuff, but I, I trust <laughs> that you you know what you're doing here. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm actually, I'm laughing because this is one of the ones that I highlight is um, somewhat atypical. So I, I basically say that we as the readers are the ones that do prosopological exegesis to a degree here, because it's somewhat, this is one of the places where it's somewhat unclear who's actually speaking in Hebrews. We assume based on the the um, characterization thus far that it's the father, and that's of course where I've landed, as you can see. I think you're looking at the, maybe the table of contents there. Um so that is where I, where I come down. There's also a question as to um, whom he's addressing. And so this, again, this is actually me doing the exegesis of Hebrews. Um, so some think that he's speaking to the son. Um, I, I think that he is declaring this to, to all. And I, I think, I do think that um, that the son overhears this, or the son is a part of this, of course. And, and this comes back to your, your question. What was interesting is that um, when we look at the rest of Hebrews, and, and sorry, I'm being a little bit cheeky, because as I said, this this one is a little bit harder to, to look at. Um, but if we look at the rest of Hebrews, then the next person to speak is the son. And this is where he says, um, sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you've prepared for me. Um, he says, you know, all these different offerings, whatever. He says, I have come to do your will. And so basically the father says, I, I want a new covenant. You know, the days are coming and I will make a new covenant. And then a couple of chapters later, but certainly within the extension of the argument, the son says, I've come to do your will. Um, and I think that Prospological Acts of Jesus highlights for us the cooperation and coordination among them. So, uh, you know, thankfully, this comes back to some of what you're highlighting in your previous question as well. And, you know, in highlighting their agency, um, I certainly don't want to point toward them working as, um, you know, solely autonomous agents or anything like that. That's not the case. In fact, one of the difficulties is that it's not entirely clear. We're talking about... Um, what's kind of um, odd intra, odd extra. We have no idea if this speech is odd intra, odd extra, if they're 
you know, somehow communicating to each other. I mean, it's just beyond our scope. Um, and whether whether communication is appropriate ad intra, I mean, there are much brighter minds than I will have to address that at some point. But yeah. So it sounds like there's a lot of work still to be done in this general area. What what do you think is most lacking that would be good to be researching? Yeah. Um, so my dream, and I'll just put this out there. So if any uh, systematicians want to hit me up, um, I mean, I would love to see, um, you know, a proper theologian come through and, you know, work on some of these things and look at the um, the theological implications of this kind of treatment. Um, and I, you know, I'd personally, you know, maybe in, in five or 10 years, like, write, like to write something like that with a theologian to be able to develop this in tandem. Because I think that we ask just such different questions of the text. Um, and, you know, I, I hope that my work is theologically informed. I know um, some incredible theologians who are certainly biblically informed, but I think that dialectic is really important and would be something interesting to, to see done. So. Are there any resources that you think are particularly helpful for somebody who maybe wants to learn a bit more about prospological exegesis, whether that be, um, you know, you mentioned uh, Matthew Bates, um, maybe something by him or um, or maybe even just high level things that that they need to maybe read to have in place about their view of Scripture and the way Scripture is inspired, the way we should just approach Scripture from a high level. They need to have that in place before even trying to delve into this more specifically. So any recommended resources uh, for the listeners? That's a great question. Um, I mean, probably the most accessible thing that um, that looks at prospological exegesis, but also looks at the implications would be something like um, Fred Sanders' Triune God. Um, so in that, I mean, he labels it as prosoponic exegesis, um, but it's certainly the same thing. Um, and, and I think it's a great resource. And there are a couple of others. I mean, Scott McKnight has a new book coming out um, maybe in the summer or fall, and um, it's five things— um, I wish every theologian knew or something like that. Sorry, Scott, if I, you know, I'm totally butchering this, but he looks at the implications of this kind of exegetical work for theology. Um, and I think that's a really neat resource. Um, but then, yeah, of course, Matt's, Matt's, uh, Matt Bates' work is excellent and um, it is certainly more technical. Um, but if you're interested in learning more about the phenomenon, I mean, Birth of the Trinity, um, it is more technical, but it's also, I mean, it's just so rich. Um, it's some really beautiful readings and and I would commend it. So, yeah. Thank you. Yeah, I've had Bates on my shelf for who knows how long. And I hear all these people say it's great. So, Maybe I need to finally dive into it. <laughs> Good, um, yeah, make the time. <laughs> let me, I, I want to ask, when it comes to the context of local church, say, say I'm not a pastor, Brandon is, but say I am, and I'm in, in that context where I'm trying to help my members understand how to, how to practice this and do this. Are there any tips or tools that you could give to say, this is a good way to explain it to where they can get it and understand it. Yeah. Again, um, don't say the, the name, um, but I, I really, um, you know, this is coming back. I really don't think the phenomenon is, is terribly difficult to explain. Um, you know, you say this new Testament author is, interpreting or is reading this text in light of Jesus or in light of the spirit or the father. 
and and then just working through the operating assumptions. I mean, it's the same thing as when I mean, um, I, you know, perhaps I'll have different opinions, but I'm of the the mind that bringing Greek and Hebrew into the pulpit is is rarely helpful. Um, and so it's more about it's not about showing your work; it's about showing what's important to to our listeners and, you know, to congregants and understanding the text. And I think it's the same here. It's not, it's not about, you know, putting together a piece and uh, working through all the mysterious steps, but just saying, this is why this matters. If there's an important thing about the background, about the way that it was read in early Jewish literature or something like that, I I think that can be helpful. Um, But yeah, it's um, seeing, seeing what brings the text alive, I guess that's important. Cool. Uh, a little bit off topic, but not totally. Uh, We've got a lot of listeners who are in the student phase where they're master students and they're thinking about going on doing a PhD at some point. Uh, Are you accepting PhD students in this general area? Is that something you would welcome inquiries, uh, interest in that? Oh, absolutely. Um, if anybody wants to talk to me ever about Hebrews, then I'm all about it. Um, but I would love to to supervise on Hebrews or prosopological exegesis. I mean, even, um, you know, kind of use of scripture broadly is something that that I'm super into and even kind of Septuagint studies, though, to to a lesser degree, my expertise. So, yeah. Awesome. Uh, just a quick question. Um, not something we had talked about discussing so but maybe you have answers you probably have answers to this off on the top off the top of your head but um since hebrews is is kind of your thing do you have any favorite um commentaries that you could recommend on the book of hebrews yeah um i i do get asked this a lot and so uh, what i say every time is that this answer changes um you know for so frequently um but today i'm going to recommend uh gary cockrell's um is it the it's the new international commentary on the New Testament? I mean, I, I think it's a great resource because um, it's one of the most recent, you know, really technical commentaries that come has come out. Um, it's obviously a great series, um, but it's also it's it's deeply pastoral, um, but very technical. Um, I also I love um, uh, Craig Kester's anchor. Uh, commentary, and um, I know that there are mixed feelings about the Hermeneia series, but. Harold Attridge's um, Hebrews Hermeneia is excellent, and it's absolutely one of my top three. So it's wonderful. Um, Another plug, and I I didn't mention this in my top three because it's more specific, but my colleague Dana Harris has a new commentary out in the Exegetical Guide to the Greek New Testament series. And it's if you're wanting to work with the original language with the Greek, and of course, Hebrews is pretty tough. So you need all the help you can get, then definitely check out um, Dr. Harris's commentary. That's good stuff. So I appreciate the help. This, who wrote Hebrews in your opinion? <laughs> Why does it, you, you, how can no you idea. get an interview about <laughs> Hebrews and not ask that question? So I actually, came, I thought Brandon was going to ask me that. And when he didn't, I was like, oh, great. I, I uh, finally totally avoided that ball. question. You, <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm here to pick it up. <laughs> I have no idea. Um, I don't. I don't think that's available to us. I mean, I have. I have some ideas. I can give you a fuller answer. I mean, the short answer is that I have no idea. But if you want to hear more of them, by all means. <laughs> well, who? Who? If you had to just take a guess, if you had to put some money on it, um, who would you pick? Yeah, Kaiser Sose. First of all, um, no, sorry, I. Um, <sighs> So I usually I break this down into um, authors whose work we know, 
and authors who, whose work we don't know. Um, so obviously in that first category of people like Paul and Luke and Clement of Rome, um, I think Luke is the best option in that category. I know that's like the the sleeper option. Most people think Paul. Um, I'm open to Luke and Paul being some kind of cool team. That's certainly something that's proposed in the early church. Um, I don't know. But as far as, you know, people who who are proposed, whose writings we don't know, um, I mean, this is there's no way of knowing, but if it's like, well, I, I like what, you know, how this lines up or what we know or whatever. I mean, the options are people like Barnabas, who of course was a Levite. Um, we have Apollos. Uh, that's a great option. And for a long time was certainly my like clear favorite. Um, but that, that option is actually not put forward until Martin Luther. Um, so it's nowhere in the early church. And I think that's a piece of evidence that we need to at least wrestle with a little bit. And then Prisca, of course, was put forward by um, Adolf von Harnack. And for all the reasons that Apollos would be put forward, Prisca is, is another good option. There's one masculine pronoun that people, or sorry, masculine participle that disqualifies Prisca for some. Um, but my cheeky answer is that if Junia can become a man, then surely this uh, participle can become uh, um, masculine. But I, I have no dog in that fight. That is so. well played. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> I, I don't even know how to reply to that. That's good. Um, so, well, that this is awesome. I, I want to. I got me totally off track. I did not expect that. That was funny. Um, is there any last parting words you have on this topic to say? Because I I have seen more and more people become interested in more people trying to promote it and everything. Um, is there any closing words you want to say about the topic in general? Just say, Hey, I, I, maybe it's just throwing some people a bone saying, Hey, I, I wish you guys would be interested in this for reason X, Y, Z, or, or maybe stop saying this dumb objection over and over. Cause it's not a good one. Wh- whatever it may be. Um, let's see. I don't know. I mean, my, my main thing, I mean, I'm prosopological exegesis. I'm all about it, whatever. My main thing is read Hebrews. I think that it is such a rich theological text and offers us so much. And, and I'll add one more thing. Don't read Hebrews as a Pauline text full stop. I mean, read it in its own right. Uh, this isn't me saying that, um, you know, the, um, that scripture shouldn't be interpreted in light of scripture. Or there, there's not, you know, continuity and all of that. Not at all. But Hebrews is not written by Paul. I mean, it, it's very likely not. And so, um, there are a lot of misunderstandings that come into the interpretation of Hebrews when we make it a Pauline text and mm. make it Romans 2.0. It's not. Um, but it is so beautiful. So that's that's my big plug. That's a good word. I appreciate. I, I I've always found it strange that people want to make this. Paul's letter. I, I I just don't understand the drive behind it and the desire. Uh, I feel like it was what my my undergrad, my first Greek exegesis course was on Hebrews, which oh, I don't wow. recommend. That wow, it, <laughs> it props was, for sure. Uh, uh, I felt like I was drowning <laughs> most every single day, but I, even 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 as a novice, I could tell that this is not the same as what Paul's doing. So mm-hmm. I, I just don't understand why people want to like shove a square peg into a round hole, but you know, more power to you, I guess, but no, no more power to you. Sorry. That's right. That's what we do. So 
Dr. Pierce, I really appreciate you guys, you coming on and talking with us about this. I think this has been fun. Uh, it's been helpful. I've learned a lot on this because I just don't know a ton about the topic. And uh, as always, uh, for for our listeners, you have a Twitter, right? Is there anywhere else you. people can follow you? Yeah. Um, so I'm on Twitter. That's my primary kind of public face or whatever. We also, we have a podcast, um, James Arcadi that you mentioned is on there as well. Um, Michelle Knight, Josh Jip. So that's forward. Um, and our handle is forwardpodcast.com or forward podcast, but there's also forwardpodcast.com. So go and check you, that out. You spell forward weird, don't you? No, so it's like the forward it? of a book. We're, we're oh, nerds. That's right. okay. <laughs> <laughs> I did not realize that's what it meant. <laughs> Wow, we need to get that out to the public, I guess. <laughs> I'm just I'm just showing my ignorance all around today. No, so. it's not you. We actually this is this is one of our marketing problems is that we frequently get people misspelling uh, forward. And so yeah, maybe we need to be clear about why we're forward and all that. But yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, I was thinking direction this whole time and just <laughs> Right over the head. Well, now I know. So I learned even more stuff. That's great. Well, Dr. Pierce, thanks a ton for talking to us about this topic. I think it's been a lot of fun. Uh, and everybody who's been listening, check out her stuff. Check out the things that she's gotten coming in uh, down in the future, because I imagine there's going to be some good uh, books coming along the way. Uh, we will make sure to let you know as they are released. And uh, for those who have been listening, you've been listening to the only analytic Baptist and confessional podcast on the planet. And we thank you for tuning in. Thanks. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.